All right. So uh, like Justin said, this morning we're starting our series through Hope Has a Name. Um, And when I think of the word hope, and I'm sure when most of you think of the word hope, most of the time when you hear that statement, it's in a situation where you're asked a question or, you know, do you who do you think is going to win that? Man, I sure hope Auburn does or or fill in the blank. I don't want to get into Iron Bowl discussion. But um, when when you say that, it's, it's usually just an arbitrary term that people throw around and I throw around. I'm sure you have said at some point in your life, but I want to be completely clear this morning. That when we talk about the hope that has a name, the hope we're talking about isn't an arbitrary word that we just throw around. It's not um, a, a wish. I wish uh, ha- wish has a name. You know, I wish they would win. It's, it's the name of Jesus. And it is the only thing, the only name worth putting our hope in. It's the only thing that will satisfy our need for hope. It's the only thing that will give us any real hope. It's the anchor for our souls. So as we go through the rest of this month of December, I just want to challenge you and encourage you not to think of hope in the I hope so mindset we usually do, but to think of hope in the hope has a name and I want to put all of my hope in it. And this morning, uh, I think in order to see um, how we get the term hope has a name from this passage in Isaiah 9, it'll be good for us to walk through it Um, because the word hope is never used in this passage, um, but it is shown in so many ways. So I'm going to start in Isaiah 9, verse 1. And if you're taking notes, um, I, would, I would encourage you to do so if you're not, because we're going to be moving really, really rapidly, really fast, and a lot of Scripture that you're not going to be able to turn to that, I would, that you're probably just going to have to write down, um, because we're, we're going to be moving. There's a lot to cover. But if you do have an outline... Um, the first blank that, that you're going to need to fill in, um, the passage of Isaiah, and what Isaiah is doing here is Isaiah is focusing on the past condemnation, the present redemption, and the future glory that we have in Jesus Christ. So I'll say it again. Isaiah focuses on the past condemnation, current redemption, and future glory that we have in Jesus Christ. So... Walking through this passage, you're going to see a lot of contrast between um, verbs or adjectives or words um, that 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 talk about past, present and future in contrast to one another. So starting in verse one, we won't stand right now because I won't read straight through. There's going to be a lot of stopping and talking and discussing. But verse one says, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of nations. So just in verse one, if we step back and look, we see four different phrases that Isaiah uses in order to show a contrast between past, future and present. He says there will be no gloom, will be future, no gloom what it is. In the future, there will be no gloom for the one who was past tense. In anguish. Does that make sense? Are y'all tracking with me? So there, there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. And then later in the verse, he says, in the former time. So back here, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. He says they were brought into contempt. Now they're being made glorious. And the reason these countries are listed is because these are some of the first countries and some of the the biggest countries that were ravaged by the Syrians and the Syrians as they were doing their ravaging tour, if you want to call it that. They were were two of the first. So what Isaiah is saying is that they were brought into contempt, 
but now they're being made glorious by the Lord. Verse two, if we continue in that, it says the people who walked, people who once walked in darkness, again, past tense walked um, in darkness is what they were doing, have now seen a great light. A contrast between they were in darkness now have seen light. And then those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, those who did dwell in deep darkness, on them has light shone. So again, two times, darkness to light. What was darkness is now light. And then Isaiah begins to answer the question in the rest of the passage of why and how this happens. So if, if the past was this, the present is this, and the future is this, how in the world did that happen? What came about? That, that can't just happen by itself. Verse 3 is where he gives the how or the why. He says, talking about the Lord, you have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. Isaiah isn't keeping a secret here that it's all because of God that this is happening. He says, you have done it. You have done it. You have done it. But then he goes in verses four through six and talks about how he's done it. So they all start with the same word for. And we're going to talk about how what what the Lord did in order to multiply the nations and increase its joy. Verse four says, for the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor. So his problems, his war weapon and his enemies. God, again, you have broken as on the day of Midian. Continuing in verse five, it says for every boot of the tramping warrior in battle to molt and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. So he says here, all of these bad things, these war things, he says the the problems, your enemy, your weapon, and then the boots that are worn in battle and the garments that are rolled in blood will be destroyed and burned as fuel for the fire. They'll be made irrelevant. What use is a rod if it's broken in half? It's irrelevant. It's worthless. It's no good. He's saying this is going to happen. Then in verse six is the verse that this series is focused around. um, and, And this is the source of hope. So it's kind of ironic because he's talking about war and he's talking about all these big, like terrible, gloomy, dark things. And in verse six, he starts talking about a baby. It says, for to us, a child is born to us. A son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So he's saying, I'm going to break and burn all the war and gloom and nastiness. And I'm going to bring a child that is full of hope and light and joy and peace. Does that make sense? That's where we get the idea that these names, that that hope has a name is because the ultimate reason all this is happening. And the ultimate reason all these bad things are being taken away is because there is a new, amazing, good thing coming. And his name will be Jesus. But more specifically to this passage. His name will be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. So today we're going to walk through how exactly um, the Everlasting Father name fits with Jesus in this situation. And that's kind of ironic because I'm the only person preaching in this series who isn't a father himself. So um, Blooster would probably get up here and tell you a funny story about his kid. Or something, Justin would get up here like he always does and tell that sweet story about his little curly-headed blonde baby and make everybody say, oh. But I can't really do that because I am the cute curly-headed blonde baby in my family. So that probably wouldn't go, go over very well. But um, I do have a father. 
And everyone in here, if you're alive, has a dad. And um, if you know me, you know I make fun of my dad a lot. He's very easy to make fun of. He's getting kind of old. Um, so it, it, he's just funny. His mannerisms, the way he talks, is just funny. But truthfully, I love my dad more than anything. And um, I couldn't have asked for a better earthly father to be given while I'm here. But the reality of it is, not everyone can say that. And I know that. When I say father, I'm sure some of you do think about happy memories and good times you've had with your father. But others are probably full of sadness and bad memories or abusive memories. And then others might be even full of hatred because of a lack of any memories with your father because he wasn't present in your life. But regardless of your background, regardless of where you come from, I I promise you on the authority of Scripture that when you look at the fatherly portrait of Jesus, he is far better than any fatherly portrait that's been in your life up to this point. Jesus is a perfect portrait of what fatherhood looks like. There's no mistimed stroke on the canvas. There's no twitchy swipe of the brush. No miscolored, miscoloration in his face. He is a perfect portrait of what a father should look like. So regardless of uh, your past relationship with your father, what you think when you hear the word dad or father, I want to encourage you this morning to wipe that slate clean because the image you're about to get of a father is better than anything you could have ever experienced already. And that's because the word of God says so. So um, to see Jesus' father on the surface might not seem very um, common. I know when I was planning, I was like, how in the world am I going to preach this? Because most of the time we think when we think the word father in Scripture, we think of God, the father, um, that that part of the Trinity. But this very clearly references Jesus as the everlasting father. I think there are a few passages of Scripture from the New Testament that we can turn to in order to kind of give some clarity on the subject. So John chapter 14, starting in verse eight, reading through 11, Jesus having a conversation with Philip. And Philip has the audacity to say, Lord, show us the Father and it will be enough for us. Jesus, you're not enough. Show us the Father, then it will be enough. In verse 9, Jesus responds and says, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. And then if we turn to Hebrews 1, we get a little bit of a a reasoning under why Jesus said this. Verse 3 says, He, talking about Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God, and Jesus is the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. So what we see is that when we look to the life of Jesus, we see the exact imprint of the Father's nature in the person and work of Him. When we look to the life of Jesus, we see the exact imprint of the nature of the Father in the person and work of Him. Jesus is the Father and the founder of our faith, but He's also an in-the-flesh example to look at and see God the Father through. Does that make sense? So... What we're going to do over the next few minutes that we have is we're going to walk through some, and I say some, 
uh, very emphatically because this list is not exhaustive, but some of the attributes of Jesus that we see through the scriptures and through one specific passage. And uh, then we're going to take those attributes and, and, and then turn and look to God and see how he shows those attributes. So it's almost like we're going to be looking in a mirror. We're looking in this mirror, see what is what's in it and then move our eyes to the person standing in the mirror. Does that make sense? So uh, we'll be in John chapter three, verse twenty five. And this is going to be our main text. We're going to be jumping all over the place, a lot of different uh, a lot of different texts. But this is going to be our main text. And as you're turning there, I'll just give a little bit of context on the passage. The first 21 verses of John 3 are a super famous story in Scripture. So we get John 3, 16 of Jesus talking to Nicodemus about being born again. And Nicodemus is really confused. And Jesus is trying to explain uh, the idea of being born again and what that means. And then verses 22 through 24, we get kind of the context of the current situation. Jesus and John the Baptist are both baptizing. And they're actually in a, in a place or, or situated in a way where they can see each other. And a discussion rises between uh, some of John's disciples and a Jew over the topic of purification. And that's where we pick up with in verse 25. But if you would, please stand with me as we read this passage. We won't stand as we read everything this morning. But um, it'd be like playing musical chairs. But this is, again, just to signify that what God is saying through Scripture is infallible and way more important than anything I say before or after. So starting in verse 25, reading through the end of the chapter, it says, Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, A person cannot receive one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourself bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the spirit without measure. The father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Lord, we come to you now. I want you to teach us through your word. God, help us to glorify Jesus this morning as our everlasting father. Jesus name. Okay, so going ahead and diving right into these eight attributes um, that we see in Christ. Number one in this passage, number one, we see that Jesus is active in verse 26. John's disciples say, talking about um, the one you bore witness to, John, he says, look, he is baptizing. That's an active verb to describe Jesus. Notice they don't look at him and say, look, Jesus is sitting in his lazy boy napping. But they also don't say, look, Jesus is over there climbing a tree mindlessly. The point of this is, is to say that Jesus is active and Jesus is always doing what matters. He is always doing what matters. He's never he's never lazy, but he's also never just a busybody that does a lot of different things just to say he's working. He's doing what matters. He's doing the thing that he commands in his last statement to his disciples. 
We also see if we take our eyes off the reflection and look to the character of God, we see that God is active. Isaiah chapter 41, verse 10. And again, I would encourage you, don't try to turn there and keep up because it's not going to happen. Um, just I would encourage you to write, write the scripture down on the back or on the side or whatever. But um, uh, Isaiah 41, 10 says, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Again, we see God is described here in the same way as Jesus with active verbs. I will strengthen, I will help, and I will uphold. Our God is an active God who wants to work in us and through us for the purpose of his mission. The next attribute of Jesus that we see in this passage is that Jesus is inviting Verse 26 again says, look, he is baptizing. And it says, and all are going to him. Here's the thing. People wouldn't go to Jesus if he wasn't inviting. People always flock to what is appealing to them. Um, Scary movies, they terrify me, but they make no sense to me. Um, the the, The people in the movie always make the worst decision and go to the least inviting place. And Geico actually made a commercial a few years ago kind of making fun of that for the sake of their insurance. And I think we have that clip, uh, if we can play it, just for kind of a visual example. I think it shows a pretty good example of what it looks like to not go to what's inviting. No one's ever going to do that in real life. But in the scary movies, they do it because it makes it more interesting. Right? They, they, they have a choice between an attic, a basement, a running car, and a chainsaw shack with a killer on their property um, that has no car. And they decide to go to the chainsaw shack. And then when they get caught, they say, go to the cemetery. Go to the cemetery. Like, that makes no sense whatsoever. But... In the real world, people are always going to go to what's appealing to them. So the fact that people are going to Jesus shows that he is an inviting father. He wants people to come to him. We also see if we look at the character of God, that God is inviting. First Timothy chapter two, verses three through four say this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. The fact is, God wants all people to know him. And the fact that God is active or Jesus is active and the fact that he's inviting should make us want to go with the gospel to the rest of the world. And if we're not doing that, then we're not resting and trusting the truth that God is active and God is inviting. The third fatherly attribute uh, that we see in Christ is that Jesus is leading Verse 29 says, you yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The marriage relationship is the closest example that we have on earth to look at between the relationship between the father and his people. And ultimately, a good godly marriage is always going to look like the bridegroom leading the bride. 
If that's not happening, it's not a godly marriage. And Scripture talks about a lot how Jesus is the head of the body. Jesus is the bridegroom and we're his bride. Jesus is leading us. But the thing is, it's a two-sided coin. Jesus can't lead us unless the bride is willing to let him lead. We have to embrace his leadership. And some attributes later on are going to give us some help to do that. We also see in Scripture that God is leading. In Isaiah chapter 30, verse 21, I love this, the visualization, the imagery that we get from this verse. It says, And your ears shall hear a word behind you, saying, This is the way, walk in it, when you turn to the right or when you turn to the left. Scripture says, If you get off the track that you're supposed to be on, you'll hear a voice saying, This is the way, walk in it. God is constantly guiding us. Isaiah Chapter 58, verse 11 says, And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desires and scorch places and make your bones strong. Again, we see that God is guiding, God is leading, and He wants us to follow Him. The fourth attribute, uh, fatherly attribute that we see in Christ is that Jesus is satisfying. Verses 29 and 30 said, The friend of the bridegroom, talking about himself, who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. John is saying the vo- just the voice of Jesus brings joy. Just the voice of Jesus brings a joy that is absolutely complete. And John is saying that I need to decrease so that Christ can increase all the more. I go to my girlfriend's house a lot to eat dinner, and uh, we always drink water with our meals because we're healthy. And uh, I love it. I absolutely love it. But um, it, I, I like to drink milk with my dessert. If I'm eating a brownie or ice cream or something, I like to drink milk. But let me ask you something. If my glass is still half full or half empty, if you're a pessimist with water, um, and I go to pour milk in it without pouring the water out, how's that milk going to taste? It's going to taste pretty terrible. It's not going to satisfy my desire. In order for me to get the full satisfaction from that milk, I have to pour out the remaining water so that the whole glass can be filled up with milk. And in the same way, John is saying here, in order for you to be completely satisfied, even I, the one that came before Christ, who is his friend, who has been leading, creating the path before him, even I need to be poured out completely so he can have all of it or else you're not going to be satisfied. We also see that God is satisfying. Psalm chapter 16, verse 11 says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. I'm convinced that the reason we so often turn to idols in our life isn't because we see them as too appealing, but we don't see God as as appealing as He really is. We don't see them as too satisfying. We see God as not satisfying enough. But the truth of Scripture is, when we really look at God, nothing in the world combined comes close to comparing to how satisfactory He is. Trying to compare all the things of the world to to God and satisfaction is like trying to compare a little wick from a lighter to the light that you see from the sun. If If I came up to you with a candle and said, look at this. This is just about as bright as that sun out there. You would call me a foolish. 
In the same way, on a much higher level, comparing everything the world has to offer to our amazing, satisfying God is so, so foolish. Because God is satisfying. Jesus is a satisfying Father. The fifth attribute that we see in this text is that Jesus is holy. Verse 31 says, He who comes from above is above all. And then later on in the verse, it says, He who comes from heaven, again, is above all. The very definition of holy means to be set apart. And what John is saying here is simply that Jesus is distinctly higher than anyone or anything you and I will ever encounter. The reality of our life on earth here is that we're all, if you're, if you're, we're all born bad. No one's born good. There's no one is good. No, not one is what the scripture says. And uh, the difference between us and our fathers and Jesus as the father is that he is good. He is holy. He is distinctly higher than everyone else and everything else we will ever encounter. We also see that God is holy. First Samuel chapter two, verse two says there is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. In Revelation 4, 8 says, And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. They never stop saying that God is holy. That must mean it's a significant attribute of the Lord. I would actually argue that God's holiness is one of his most defining attributes because um, if he's not holy, he's not a good God. He can't be a good God because he's not set apart. He's not higher. He's not above everyone else. And again, he is above everyone and everything. He's distinctly higher than everyone and everything we will ever come in contact with. And God is so white hot holy that he cannot tolerate our sin at all on any level. The sixth attribute that we see um, in Christ of a father is that Jesus is trustworthy. Verses 32 and 33 say he again talking about Jesus bears witness to what he has seen and heard. And then picking up in verse 33, it says whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. I used to love sitting and listening to the stories my dad would tell me. I have no idea if they were true or not. Um, like there was one story where he gotten uh, somehow gotten a fight sinfully got in a fight with two guys at McDonald's and and one of them was beating on his back and all of a sudden a little Chinese man comes up and puts a, one one of the guy like he knew kung fu or something puts the guy on the ground and says if you don't stop I'm gonna snap his neck and that was a story I didn't I'm, I'm not making that up that was just word like word for word what my dad used to say um, it doesn't sound very believable but the thing is I never doubted my dad's trustworthiness for a second I never doubted it for one second. I just wanted to sit and marvel at how amazing my dad was. Did I have reason to doubt that he was trustworthy? Yeah, probably so. Um, he's told lies before. But, um, but with Jesus, his trustworthiness, he says, he speaks of what he's seen and heard. And we know from Scripture that God is true. And, and, and Scripture says, if you trust what Jesus says, you set your seal that God is true. Jesus is a trustworthy father and anything he says we can cling to with all of our hope. We also see that God is trustworthy in the scriptures. Psalm chapter 18 verse 30 says this God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. 
He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. God is trustworthy. He, he, we can always run to him and never, never in any way doubt that we're not receiving the truth. The seventh attribute of Jesus that we see in this text is that Jesus is giving. Verse 34 says, uh, for he gives the spirit without measure. Jesus speaks the truth of God. God gives the spirit without measure. But we also see later in verse 35 that Jesus has received all authority from the Lord. So Jesus gives the spirit without measure. We see that also God is giving. And I have a, a few scriptures for this just because scripture talks a lot about the good gifts God loves to give us. Ultimately, we see that um, God gives salvation. Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. So we see salvation as a gift. James 1.17 says, Even past salvation, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Matthew 7, 11 says, If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? In the same way that, the Father, that our fathers here love to give good gifts to their children, our Father above loves to give good, give good gifts to us. Ultimately, we see that in salvation, but He gives good gifts to us all the time. Now, now don't, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying you're going to receive money. You're going to receive, receive wealth. I'm saying you're going to receive joy and satisfaction and happiness in the satisfactory character of Christ that we talked about previously. Does that make sense? All right, the eighth and last attribute, again, just from this passage, not an exhaustive list that we see in Jesus, is that Jesus is authoritative. In verse 35, we've already mentioned it, but it says the father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. Jesus has all authority over everything, whether, whether people or beings are willing or not. But specifically, especially he has authority over our lives as believers to say and tell us to do what he wants because he has all authority from the Lord. Jesus' authority doesn't mean that he's a constant grump like a principal or a boss and that he doesn't care about our joy. He wants us to be completely happy and completely satisfied. But he knows for our good that the only way to be completely satisfied and completely happy is in him, himself. We also see that God is authoritative in the scriptures. Romans chapter 13 verse 1 says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. And Jude one twenty five says, To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, and now, and forever. Amen. God has all authority. He's always had it. He has it now, and He always will. And that's why Jesus was able to stand before Pilate when Pilate is questioning him, said, don't you know I have authority over you? And Jesus basically just laughs at him and says, yeah, but I know who has authority over you and I know who's given you that authority. So knowing these eight attributes of the father we have in Christ, we might begin to notice. I began to notice that I wasn't holding on to some of these truths like I should. 
And that creates some sin issues in my life. But I don't want to focus and, and hammer down on, hey, this is what you're doing wrong. I want to focus on why we need to make sure we are clinging to these things because it is important. If someone doesn't see, if you don't see Jesus as your authority and as leading, um, you're not going to obey him. If you don't see him as active and inviting, you're not going to evangelize. If you don't see him as satisfactory, then you aren't going, you're going to have idols left and right. If you see him as authoritative, but don't see him as trustworthy, then you're not going to have any reason or feel any means to do what he says or follow him. So I would say there are two reasons, two big reasons that we need to always focus on all of these fatherly attributes of Christ. Two big reasons. Number one, because they always work together. Like I said, if Jesus was inviting, but if Jesus wasn't active, then there would be no reason to evangelize. If Jesus was authoritative, but if, he, if Jesus was authoritative, but he wasn't um, satisfactory, he would be like a, a slave owner. He would be just a domineering authority that we have no reason to want to follow. Does that make sense? And you could go down and down the list because they all rely on each other. Number two, the second reason, because all of these attributes will always be true for all time. I'll say that again. All of these attributes, every single one, will always be true for all time. We spent a good bit of time talking about and focusing on the fatherly attributes of Christ. But to go back to the original name in Isaiah 9, 6, it says, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. I love my dad, but the reality of it is, if I don't go before him, at some point he's going to pass away. And um, I'm sure some of you have experienced your father or grandfather passing at some point in your life already. And that's a very sad reality. And that's a very sad aspect of life. But the amazing news about the father we have in Christ is that we, can, we don't have to doubt for a second that he's not always going to be there. See, my dad, at some point, the only time I'll be able to think about the attributes of him are in memories from my past. Jesus is always constantly every step of the way showing these attributes to us. And not only is he everlasting, but he's never failing. That's the reason we're able to put our hope in Christ is because he is a never failing, everlasting father that we can place our hope in. He's a good father. Isaiah 9, the end of the, the end of the passage after he says these names, in verse 7, talks about this. It says, Of the increase of Jesus' government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. We get a very clear statement from Scripture. Twice he says there will be no end and it will reign forevermore. Our King and Father in Christ will reign and will be there from now forevermore. And He's never going to have a lapse in judgment. And we know this is going to happen because Isaiah says the zeal, the passion of the Lord will do this. The infallible Word of God promises it. So you might be asking this morning, well, how does all this truth about Jesus as our father, as our everlasting father, apply to my life? And I believe there are two answers for two different people in the room. To the believer, 
Um, this should create in us a heart that just wants to glorify and worship and worship and worship because of how good and how never failing our amazing everlasting father is. Worship, worship, worship. But to the unbeliever in the room, there's a there's a sad, harsh reality in all this is that when the unbeliever dies and they get to the judgment seat, they aren't going to see Jesus as a loving father. They're going to see him as a domineering authority. They're not going to see him as active and inviting. They're going to see him as um, condemning and exclusive. Not because Jesus is those things, but because they never put their trust in him. Jesus is it's not an, this isn't an inclusive, everybody saved, happy ending. It requires our faith. The passage in John chapter three, verse 36 says, after John has talked to all of his disciples about this very thing, he says, whoever believes in the son has eternal life. But whoever does not obey the son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. If you don't believe and obey, you aren't a child of Jesus. And these attributes aren't true of your father because he's not your father. So I would encourage you this morning, if you're seeing Jesus in this light for the first time, be like the man in Matthew 13, who finds a treasure in a field and then goes and sells everything that he has just so he can buy that field for that treasure. I won't lie. The reality of following Jesus is this. Is it costly? Yeah. But is it worth it? Absolutely. And to say that it's absolutely worth it is an understatement. To say that that is an understatement is an understatement. If someone came up to me and offered me a million dollars for my iPhone, I would take it. Did it cost me my iPhone? Yeah, but I got so much more from it. In the same way, on a much grander scale, to give up everything in your life in order to follow Christ is worth it. It's so worth it. Acts chapter 13, verses 38 through 39 says, Let it be known... To you, therefore, brothers, that through this man being Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, him alone, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Paul is very clear in that. Not Paul. Luke is very clear in that writing that through Jesus and Jesus alone, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed. And if you've placed your faith in Jesus, great, worship him today. But if you haven't, I want to ask you, would you this morning? There's no better time than now. I know that's cliche, but it really isn't. Jesus is the only way to receive salvation. Jesus is the only way we can be forgiven from our sins because of the perfect life he lives, the death he died in our place, and the resurrection from the grave where he stamped the seal of defeat on death and said, you have no reign anymore. So I want to ask you, again, if you're seeing Jesus in this light for the first time, would you put your hope in our unfailing, everlasting Father this morning and then live a life worthy of the calling of Christ? There's elders. Justin's here. I'm here. If you want to talk to um, about it or about anything, the altar's open. The, the prayer area over there is, is definitely open. And I would just encourage you to respond how the Lord called you with no hesitation this morning because of our everlasting father in Christ. He is worth it and he is a good father.